Hello and welcome to another episode of the Get Football Tactics podcast. I'm your host Neil Shalat and as always I'm delighted to say that I've been joined by Varun Vasudevan. How are you Varun? I'm good. So Alex coming second was just a random one one random event and we're back to me coming second and Alex coming third. So yeah, yeah. I'm already happy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I I decided to save Alex for a bit later today because of course it's very early in the morning for him. So Good morning, Alex. Uh, how are you doing? Are You're you good correct. Night's sleep? Like I would, I would usually be sleeping right now. It's seven, quarter to seven on a Sunday morning. But I, okay. I'm not going to. Isn't it quarter to eight? Quarter to eight. Oops. I'm not going to complain too much <laughs> though, because like uh, for the listeners, we tend to record at times where it's like very late for Varun and quite late for Neil. So you know, it's all good. Fair enough. Bit of balance there. Okay. Today we're going to be talking about two clubs as opposed to one which we often do because we will be tackling both the Milan clubs in one episode. We think they're probably going to be the two main title contenders in Serie A this season although Alex has a differing opinion which is probably one for another episode. Uh, but we're going to focus on on these two for now. They are currently the top two in the Serie A table. Of course, uh, didn't win last season but the couple of seasons before that, they both won uh, one each. Uh, so, the interesting times for both clubs right now, safe to say, they're uh, under the same manager for a few uh, couple of seasons now. So, some sort of stability there. Uh, and and so, we think it's, it's worth digging into. So, we'll obviously be focusing on what they're doing this season. But as always, just to set some context before that, we'll quickly take a look at their previous season. And also, I think Warren has some stuff to say about the two clubs a recent history in general. So, uh, Varun, let's start with that. Yeah, I mean, just a small point, and you alluded to it in terms of stability. In in terms of the journeys for both these clubs, it's actually very fascinating that between 2013 and 2019, both clubs never finished in the top three in Syria. And considering what we know about Inter Milan and AC Milan, that is really surprising. I mean, for at least seven years, it was constantly Juve, Napoli. Then the odd year Lazio came in the top three. Then the odd year Atlanta came uh, third. But other than that, it's just been Juve versus Napoli. And both clubs have just been... Uh, it was a phase where there had a lot of changes. A lot of boardroom changes. A lot of uh, manager changes. A lot of player changes. The, the complete team and even the tactical style, they kept getting revamped. And finally, I think towards the end of that phase... As you said, they stabilized. Uh, Milan, especially in terms of the director of football work, the way they want to play, the manager. And now, for the last four years, 2020 to 2024, both clubs have always finished in the top three. There was, I think, one season where one of them dropped to fourth. But then, largely speaking, it's been consistent. Uh, They won the league uh, each as well. And they've been in and around the top four uh, consistently and again as you said they look like at least two of the leading contenders this time so I just wanted to say that I mean it's been a great rise for both clubs before we get into details about them uh, these last few years have definitely been what the clubs wanted you know and the fans wanted for a whole decade yep that that's fair enough of course two extremely historic clubs with with great success so as you say a, a bit of a rocky decade almost there but back on the up now so let's uh, quickly talk about their previous seasons uh, alex why don't you take us through uh, inter's 22 23 season 
I can do that indeed. They ended up uh, finish uh, finishing third after quite a little bit of a rocky start, but obviously a really strong end that included them getting to the Champions League final. I, I think it's worth saying that their rocky start was kind of inflicted by their personnel issues. So last season, they obviously brought back Romelu Lukaku on loan. And for those who don't know, Inter Milan, they're they're only now really beginning to get out of quite a financial crisis. Their owner lost all of his money. I think he's... Actually, I I, won't speak on what I don't know. You can have a look up for it for yourself. Um, But yeah, I mean, their squad is a little uh, tough to work with. So they had Lukaku, um, but he... uh, he only got 10 goals as he only really came into the side the second half of the season. He spent the first half injured or unfit. There was even a point where um, the sport, I think it's sport director, Beppe Morata, um, my got his name wrong there, it's very early. He, he like said before Champions League game, Lukaku's, he basically implied Lukaku's too fat at the moment. Um, so it's, it, that wasn't ideal. Uh, so Inter had to rock up with Ed and Dzeko and Martinez up front. Both neither ideal. Marcelo Brozovic, obviously key in recent years. He was missed basically the entirety of the season. Um, Skriniar in January confirmed he's moved to PSG and was injured, so he was jettisoned out of the side. So they had a very uh, tough road, road through it, but I think Simone Inzaghi kind of came off uh, really nicely. He, he had to tinker through. Uh, he, I think he... he he managed to get big wins from memory. I think he managed to like even beat Napoli in there as well. And obviously, like the Champions League from was reflective of what he was able to do with his team. And it he, he came at quite an awkward time for him because the year before uh, was his first full season where Milan won the league, and everyone kind of considered Inter to bottle it. But he was taking them away from. Um, the system that Antonio Conte used, well, the tactics Antonio Conte used a little, I'm trying to make him more progressive, uh, which we'll touch on more this season. But he kind of, every challenge that came his way, he managed to find a way around it. And um, I think he's had a big transition now from someone who at the start of 2023, uh, some Inter fans wanted out, to now, eight months later, I see a lot of Inter fans saying that Inzaghi is one of the top coaches in Europe, and I don't disagree. Right. I think Varun has something to add before we get into Milan. Yeah, I mean, I think Alex covered it brilliantly, and I just wanted to get this extra point, uh, just to add on to what he was saying. There's always that challenge, you know, when a manager is in his second year. And I think it often happens that in your first year, you're just working with what you have. You haven't got your team. You are relying a lot on the previous manager's setups. You're relying a lot on what's there. And it's mainly about just getting some confidence in picking the right people and getting through the first season. I think he did a good job for the first season. And this happens a lot. I mean, Ten Hag is facing it right now. So many managers, even Arteta Club, all of them. That second season, when they want to get in their imprint, their style, that's when it starts getting a little rocky. And I think the start of last year, they did try a lot of things. They There were games when they pressed very high. They played a very high, high line. Again, Handanovic for Onana was another change they made. And uh, I think Inzaghi wanted to make use of that as well. So there were a lot of personal changes. I mean, some of the personal changes, like you mentioned Brozovic. It was also tactical. Uh, Brozovic was benched lots of times for Chalanoglu. 
so there were a lot of things going on a lot of experiments going on and i think it was well summarized by i think it was barilla uh, after the champions league semi final win when he was asked you know why are inter doing so well now especially in the second half of the season he actually said there was a big team meeting in december and after a few losses i think in november that they had they had a big meeting and inzaghi said let's just go back to basics let's rely on our strengths uh, the defensive block of the 532 let's uh, rely on that and let's not press so high let's not play so expansive let's just get back some element of control in terms of defensive organization and i found that very interesting because it's rare for managers to just go like hey you know what what we were trying wasn't working let's just go back to what we know or let's at least tone it down and get some stability in i think that kind of attitude is as alex said you know one of the reasons why inzaghi is uh, you know is doing quite well uh, there is a bit of um, there is a lot of reason to the way he sets up there's a lot of logic there's a lot of understanding of what is working what is not working and he has that humility to roll it back and go with what they know i think that uh, helped them in the season well i know they still came third in the league and everything but now for example this season they have started with a lot of clarity that clarity that they got in the second half of last season it got them a champions league uh, final spot and it got them a good start for this league season so in the end it's kind of worked out and come together well Yep, and I think that point you make about sort of you know, rolling back to—I mean, not necessarily basics, but like something that previously worked—might also be applicable for Milan because they didn't have the best of seasons last season. They did finish fourth, ultimately relatively comfortably uh, in the top four, that is, but twenty points off Napoli. So I mean, not a great title defense by any stretch of the imagination. Um, in 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 terms of sort of what went wrong, I think. the main thing for me was their defense um i think if you if you look at the uh, underlying numbers their uh, expected goals against was you know outside of the top 4 in the league uh in in uh, 22 23 i think it was something like 41.1 um which is significantly higher than what napoli managed which was 31.8 so that was probably the main place where it went wrong because uh, if if like if you look at that sort of attack this you know rafael leo still delivered 15 goals zero with 13 and you know a, a few others chipping in so i think that was probably the main issue and of course uh, from a tactical point of view there were some others mainly i think they tried to sort of change the the way they played in certain ways specifically the use of full backs because in the title winning season they had both full backs pushing up and sort of invert uh, go, like in not exactly inverting but like attacking inside in sort of the half spaces often uh, whereas last season they sort of tried to change some of that and now this season which we'll get into they're sort of mixing it, it up which is interesting but i think that that's basically you know a basic summary of milan's last season i do think sort of that sort of switches in possession also led into their defensive issues especially in transition so it it sort of makes sense that they also ran uh, you know revert to what worked in 21 22 and sort of match it up with what they can do right now so that that's i would say the main thing for them last season uh, they of course didn't have a good cup run or champions league so on the whole i definitely say inter had a better season than milan uh, last season 
but this season could be interesting could be very close so let's just qu- let me just quickly to sort of uh, finalize or to end this uh, discussion let's quickly just take a look at some expected points from last season inter finished third of course but on expected points they were only about 4 points off napoli now they were 18 points in the actual table napoli of course overperformed to a certain extent and also we have to caveat that with the fact that napoli sort of slumped when the title was basically in the bag so it wasn't actually this close but inter were on expected points certainly the second best side in the league uh, and milan fourth so finished um, where they should have and now as we sort of move into this season uh, of course they're the top two teams in the table at the moment uh, milan on top after last night's matches we're re- recording this on sunday so after saturday's matches where inter dropped points against bologna and milan just about beat genoa with uh, olivier giroud in goal in stoppage time which was quite a sight and, and milan genoa are losing their keeper as well oh yes yeah i mean absolute crazy ending there um so with that milan are i think a couple of points clear if i'm not wrong uh but on expected points so they have 21 points total on expected points they only have 14.8 and inter have 19 and 17 on expected points so inter are the best side in the league on expected points uh, milan of some way off oh let me quickly explain what expected points is baron told me to do, do this but i forgot thing is important so it basically uh, uses um, underlying the xg and xga xg against numbers to sort of simulate all the all the shots taken in the match and simulate the probabilities of each result based on obviously the number of goals that would go in uh, so essentially it's better than expected goal difference because this takes every match individually so like expected goal difference for example can be inflated crazily by one match where you have 6 xg and your opponent has 1 xg so now you have plus 5 xgd but on expected points of course you can't possibly get more than 3 in a match and you never really get 3 either because i mean you're never going to 100% win a game uh so because of that expected points is generally a better measure of where a team might be in a table and so that's why we were just quickly sort of using that here uh to see what where things are so uh, essentially what we take from that is last season inter deservedly better than milan and early early doors this season of course you have to caveat with the fact that we've just played eight games but early doors again inter looking better than milan uh, so let's now sort of dive into what exactly both of the teams are doing uh inter probably better as we said so Let's take a look at them first. Uh, Alex, what are they doing? Well, uh, yes, let's just, let's talk about Inter first to in my opinion, I'll be open and honest, out of the two clubs I would back to go on to win the title. Um out just out of these two clubs, we'll save my horror opinion for the end. Um but we can't talk about Inter without talking about their transfer activity this summer. Uh they lost Andre Nana of course to Manchester United, huge loss in goal. Um, they also lost uh, Skriniar, as we mentioned. Robin Gersens went to Union Berlin. They're starting left wing back. Well, starting kind of over Federico De Marco. And they lost Joaquin Carrera up front, who was a very big Simeone Inzaghi signing. Um, uh, but the, the the players they've brought in, while um, 
I didn't see it coming. They've been fun. Uh, Davy Klaassen's coming from Ajax. Uh, Alexis Sanchez has returned uh, from Marseille. Marco Naltovic has come in as well. Uh, Jan Sommer has replaced Andre Nona and has actually been really solid uh, building out from the back. Uh, Juan Cuadrado's coming from Juventus as rotation there right wing back. Uh, Benjamin Pavar, excellent option for right centre back. But the the, big, the best signing, without a doubt, has been Marcus Taram on a free. Because Inter, Inter's front two now looks... It, it, it looks as dangerous as it did when uh, Lukaku and Lautaro Martinez were there in their prime. And there's a, a few things I've noticed watching them, um, these two. Now, Taram, he's not the player he once was before his injuries hit him and made him a bit less mobile. Well, it's, like it's killed his acceleration a little bit, but Inter masks that pretty well. The way they attack, when they they go to, uh, when they go forward, they tend to play it along the ground, and when the ball kind of reaches the middle third, that's a big key for Martinez and um, Taram to start splitting and running into the channels, and it's just making defenses in Syria. Well, I have to ask a lot of questions to how they're going to defend them. Like, do they split and leave a big open central space? Or, like, or do they give uh, Taram or Martinez like, time to cut in? Obviously, I think it was against Milan where this went very badly wrong, where Taram cut inside and belted it into the top corner. Uh, but in the game before, the, these two played against Fiorentina. I thought it was really dangerous um, watching these two split. And yeah, they've been, Taram has been excellent so far. And I think he's. I can't remember off the top of my head how many goals he has got, so I'm getting it up on my phone, uh, listeners, because I am checking now. And he's got two goals and five assists in eight appearances so far. Really strong things. Uh, but you can't talk about Inter as well without talking about the rest of the team. Um, something I purposely hid uh, from the last section was why I said Brozovic got injured, and Inzaghi, I vaguely said, found solutions. Well, a solution he found was playing Hakan Chalanoglu, uh, typically, an attacking midfielder was uh, Milan, of course, uh, as a lone six. And in my opinion, that's been one of his best decisions as an Inter coach. Sharon uh, Oglu, he's always been a player who can, as we know, hit a dead ball to you know the perfect level. And I think the one of the ways he can do that is just if you give him time and space, he can pick at any pass. And rather than playing him further forward, where he has less time and space to make these passes, and sometimes he's got his back to goal. Playing him as a six, he's been able to be like a quarterback for Inter Milan and just spray these passes in behind to Martinez with Lukaku or to the wing-backs as well. Uh, something else I've noticed this season, which has been a big weapon to escape the press, is uh, the positioning of Alessandro Bastoni. Uh, so obviously, Gianoglu, good to escape the press centrally. Uh, Bastoni... He's the left centre-back, typically, for Inter. But against Fiorentina, um, Fiorentina were pressing uh, Inter pretty high. And um, like going right up to their box. And the way Inter managed to escape that was by pushing Pistoni very far out to where you'd expect the left-wing back to be. And what it did, it meant Fiorentina were trying to go player for player in the final third. And it meant that they had to make quite a heavy decision about should they track Bastoni because he would have just pulled his play marker so wide and created such a, a big channel to play the ball through. And it meant that Inter in that game were able to 
access Bastoni free, who could then power forward and like transition into attack. And he, he keeps powering forward, by the way. He keeps getting into the final third. Uh, he keeps getting into the box as well. It just seems like he's got complete free roam. He reminds me of like Sergio Ramos at Real Madrid. You know those times where to get a goal, he just say, "Okay, I'm going to play as a striker." But Bastoni's doing it in like quite a, a controlled fashion, which I really like to see. And um, it, they they also begin to press as well from the front. And as it, as Ryan mentioned, they kind of went back to basics and last season. Uh, mix it up a bit. I think that is to mix success at times. Um, well, I, I'd say that just because of a bit of an interesting example to bring up against Milan. Uh, Inter have typically gone into a 5-3-2 mid-block, sometimes a 4-4-2 block, um, to press out of. Um, in, in that game, they went player for player across Milan's midfield, or like doubled up on them pretty much, but left Teo Hernandez free. And for the majority of the game, it was fine. Um but he was making a lot of runs because he was able to pick the ball up free and it did end up leading to Milan's goal in that game. Broadly, it's been pretty solid. Um, I I know as well, a big aspect of Inter's play has been the wing-backs. I know Varane was very desperate to talk about that. Uh, So, right, please tell us the structure of uh, the the wing-backs in this team. Yeah, um, I'll just touch a bit on the midfield as well. I mean, you covered it really well. The Chalinoglu conversion reminds me of so many midfielders. Perlo, Scholes, Karik, Nemanja Matic, Rakitic, Modric, who started out as number 10s, playmaker 10s. And in modern football, there are, where are the playmaker 10s, they say. Yeah, some of them are getting converted to deeper players. And that's what hap- uh, is happening with Chalinoglu. It was essentially that same time and space that 10s could get, you know, maybe 7-8 years ago. It's not available now in that area, but it is available a little deeper. There's a little bit of build-up when you create that space, then someone like Chalunoglu can pick those passes. So, uh, I think, yeah, that is the genesis for that transformation. And as I, as you said, I totally agree. Uh, brilliant move. And it's, you know, breathed um, fresh uh, life into their attacks, especially from build-up. And how the midfield three is constructed is actually interesting. It's not a very, very solid defensive midfielder at the base. You know, left side eight, right side eight. I mean, yes, that's how it is set up. But when when they defend, especially they defend like in a pendulum. The two eights come very narrow and very deep right next to Chalunoglu. They're very close to him. And when the opponent is building on one side, for example, if they're building on the right side of Inter, then the right side eight goes out wide and helps the right-sided wing-back defend. Those two are the ones defending. And the left-sided eight and the six, that is Chalunoglu, they almost form a pivot. Then again, when play switches, the left-sided eight goes out to the left wing-back to defend, and these two uh, form the pivot. So it's like a pendulum. Uh, It's pretty interesting because they um, maintain that 5-3 kind of block, which is the basis of the defensive organization. And that's why I had to mention this before I come to the wing-backs because it's a very, very similar pendulum for the wing-backs. Your left wing-back could be as aggressive as a left midfielder or a left winger, but the right wing-back then tucks in to form like a back four. And then when the opposite happens, the right uh, wing-back is like a wing and the left wing-back tucks in. 
and even when they're defending uh, based on where the play is going they press and they come back accordingly so there's a whole pendulum structure in the mac5 as well and in the mid3 as well and overall that's the reason it becomes really really tough to break into it's very tough to switch when you're switching they do this pendulum motion and get their players there it's very tough to double team uh you can't just send in your winger and full back on one side you know a lot of modern teams do that they just overload one side mainly the left side for a lot of teams and they just think okay they'll have you know two of their best players their best full back and their best winger uh just go to v2 or try and isolate to v1 and get through and it rarely happens with inter because inter have so many bodies they have if you're attacking their left side there's a right wing back a right sided eight and a right center back who are there in a core of 3 and then there's also the right sided striker who can come and help so they have a lot of bodies on that one flank they can shift and cover it so it's really tough to just double team them on the wings i would say inter have one of the best defensive structure in europe so how teams have tried to break them is to get them with really quick play can you quick uh, switch uh, quickly enough to get them before they organize and that's why teams are found hurrying the play or relying on transitions but then when you do that you're playing into inter's hands because they defend well and then they hit you back with those transitions when you hurry the play when you're not uh, when you're not composed that plays into inter's hands they have a lot of control in defensive organization so a lot of top teams have control with possession that's how city play that's how those teams play inter have control in the defensive organization and then they have that moment where they can pick the gaps and they can counter in those spaces and that's where the dynamic of the front two and then the supporting wing backs or the supporting eight usually um uh usually barella uh those four five players can attack those spaces and it starts getting very very tough so yeah i think they've now with with two two and a half years uh, under inzaghi sorted out that part and are very very good at what they do and um like to to finish off on the wingbacks and finish off on inter uh, just a back here of an example there of how teams have exploited it i think the only team i've seen exploited properly is sassuolo um what they what i've noticed about inter is that pendulum tends to swing more to dumfries who tucks into or he'll press high or be in the midfield line and demarco's the deeper guy but quite often Demarco is a very aggressive player and looks to press and what Sassuolo did was they they looked to switch the ball to the space that Demarco would leave when he'd press so they'd like they'd draw him out then they'd switch and switch again and hit the space behind him and uh they scored two goals against Inter both from that left space and Inzaghi actually hooked Demarco in that game and brought on a uh, new sign in Carlos Augusto uh, well I think he's actually back from alone Um, so that that was an interesting point as well, like Inzaghi recognizing where it didn't work and like going a bit more conservative. But like, another player, I think, like it, one of the way that's Dumfries. He has been. I I wrote in our podcast notes, Dumfries is amazing, and these two went to attack me. Um, just for now, uh, and a bit vest. I do get it because Dumfries. Sometimes I look at him and I don't think he's a footballer because he does, is especially last season. he couldn't do the basics he couldn't cross well at all and it felt like he couldn't defend at all like he'd have 
bozo moments at the back and it's like you're looking at him thinking what are you doing what is the point of you like how do you score the goals you do you know for the Netherlands as well how do you keep popping up and just scoring goals but I think Inzaghi's used him extremely well this season where he in possession he's like Inter's furthest player forward and he'll like be used as but he basically used as a target man like balls will go to him, he'll win the headers and knockdowns, and then he'll make off the ball runs that help tear apart the defense. I mean, his crossing has slightly improved. I think his defending is slightly improved, but the the, the fact of the matter is, Dumfries in possession is one of Inter's best players at just like escaping the press and winning second balls and bullying the opposition. And Izaki's it's taken a couple of years, but it seems like Izaki's found a way of getting the absolute max out of him while get, not having to deal with his weaknesses so much. And, uh, yeah, I, I really like what he's done with him. Neil and Varon have put my, their hands up in this, so they're about to tell me off. Neil put his hand up first. Neil, you to, to you. Yeah, no, I, th- I think I actually summed it up perfectly. I think Inzaghi's done a brilliant job, and I, I assume this is what Varon's going to say as well. Inzaghi's done as good a job as I think anyone could of... Using Dumfries' strengths to, I mean, as much as he could, and masking his weakness as much as he could. I think you know this guy is one player who you cannot, who for for his own sake should not leave Inter because if he if he goes to another club, uh, I mean, yeah, then he's not gonna have a good time because as you say, defensively, I can't wait for Chelsea to sign him. <laughs> <laughs> uh, defensively, like he, I mean, I think he's still shocking, right? He cannot defend the far post for his life. So it's he can only play in a back five where he's got the help from a centre-back. And again, but going forward, as you say, he's, in, he's a genuine box th- threat in the box. Like, he would genuinely be a very good attacker at the far post. So it, this is the perfect role for him where he can push up so much so freely. Uh, and yeah, I think ultimately, you know, it's... It's, it's about using the the players you have to to uh, to the best you can uh, or to the best of their strengths and Inzaghi's done a perfect job of that so fair play to him Warren do you have something to add to that or shall we get to our last point on Inter yeah I mean I just wanted to say both of you are bang on and it's a good example of how position and role are different he's a defender on paper but he's not a defender in function at all it's like Marcus Alonso uh, usage by Conte at Chelsea, to a large extent Hakimi usage at Dortmund as well. So, yeah, I mean, uh, agree with both of your points. I mean, he's almost like a Rom Duter in attack, like a Thomas Muller on the right wing kind of, you know, scene, uh, where he's his off the ball movement, his final balls, uh, they're like really deadly. So, yeah, um, fair play on Inzaghi for that. Yeah, maybe one for a profiling episode. Anyway, uh, let's let's move on to the last thing we have, which um, is a quick thing I want to bring up about Lautaro Martinez, who, before we started recording, Varun and I were talking about, and we both agreed that we feel he's going really, really underrated because, I mean, he has had a couple of bad games in sort of big, big stages, especially at the World Cup with Argentina recently, but he's he's a really, really good striker. He's he's very well rounded. He can drop off and link up. You know. Obviously, he plays in a two, so so works well with with a second striker, um, and proper proper deadly in and around the box. Like his ball striking is absolutely crazy. I don't know if if you guys look this up, but does anyone want to guess how many goals he has so far this season? 
Um, I think it's 10. Yep, that's right. It's 10 in the league. And you can add one from the Champions League as well. So it's 10 in 8 league games. Uh, and altogether, 11 in 10 matches. And now, that is obviously a crazy number. Uh, and I think if, if you sort of look at it maybe in a bit of a negative sense, then the question might be, are Inter a bit over-reliant on Lautaro Martinez right now? But I have a stat to... Well, maybe, maybe, maybe to sort of debate that a bit. Does anyone want to guess how many game state go- changing goals uh, he scored in these 11? So a game state changing goal is obviously one which changes the sort of result of the match. So like take, takes you from a loss to a draw or a draw to a win. Any I don't guesses? know. I, I was going to say, if you'd asked me what his football rating was, I also would have weirdly been able to guess that. Uh, but <laughs> 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 which just just happened to you know I just really seem to know it. A uh, game state altering goals. I reckon at least ten. I reckon seven. Pardon? Yeah, I was gonna guess eight too. Uh, I think they are uh, they they do rely on him a lot, and he does fun- pop up all the time. Be funny if it's but, actually like yeah. two. Yeah, it's it's actually out of and no full disclosure. Before I started looking at this, I was also thinking around that range. Actually, from his eleven, only three are game state changing goals. Oh, for first now I, I I did I did count about I think three or four others which were like from one nil to two nil. So, you know, still like fairly important goals. Like it's not someone scoring, you know, four nil to five nil useless. Um so he has scored some important goals. But I think what I'm trying to say here is he is I think even even something that I thought that he is the key to Inter's attacks and sort of the the one game that springs to mind uh, is their four nil win over Salernitana recently, where they were quite poor for almost an hour, couldn't really do much going forward. Then brought on Lautaro and he scored four. Uh, so I mean, yeah, obviously it's, you know four of his goals came in that one game, but yeah, like I think what we can take from that is that maybe they're not so reliant on him. As much as we think, of course, they're still very reliant on him. I mean, as you should be for such a great player, but they do have a decent enough mix of goal threat from other players, like your two Rams, like your uh, uh, Dumfries, and from the midfielders. So I, I think, I think you know, all things considered, it's a decent balance. So yeah, I think Inter are doing very good, as you guys say. If no one has anything more to add to that, then let us quickly transition now across the city to Milan. Um, let's quickly start again with a look at their transfers. And this is something I didn't mention from the in, in the last season's review because I wanted to discuss it here. One of their big problems I felt last season in attack was that they were very sort of almost one-dimensional in the sense that everything went down the left. Uh, they had Leao there, of course, sensational player. Teo Hernandez, a brilliant attacking fullback. But I mean, obviously, that's a great flank. But their right flank was just... I mean, it was just a roadblock at many times. They didn't have any sort of dangerous right fingers. All due respect to Junior Messias and Alexis Salamakers and whoever else they had there. Not half as sort of threatening as uh, Rafael Leao. And it generally, the right back didn't... T- I mean, sometimes you can tuck it into a back three. Sometimes inverted into midfield. But didn't give you anything going forward. So it was often an isolated right winger. And an isolated right winger who did not spring uh, any sort of who, who did not sort of put any threat or sp- spring any fear in the opposition defense. So 
I think that was one of their problems. And that is something that they have done well to address in this transfer window. Now, it should be said that they received a lot of help from Newcastle, who paid 60 plus million euros for Sandro Tonali, which is, of course, a lot of money. Um, Salamakas and Messias were both shipped off on loan, I believe. I don't know if some of them have uh, obligations to buy, as is tradition almost in Italy. But basically, they got 60 million plus from Newcastle for Sandro Tonali, which I think they reinvested really, really well. Uh, 20 million for Christian Pulisic. Um, ah, you know, interesting one. Obviously, now all of their sort of signings in terms of transfer fee have been very, very good because that's the joint most expensive. So no debates on that. Uh, Pulisic didn't have the best of times at Chelsea. But, I mean, we saw at Dortmund that he, he can be a really exciting winger. And he is showing some very good signs early days at Milan. So... A, a great signing. Samuel Chukweze, uh, again 20 million from Villarreal. Super, super exciting winger. Personally, I feel like he hasn't got as much as, of game time as he might have expected. Maybe that's partly down to Pulisic being you know, better than expected. But again, super exciting winger. And then uh, another 20 million on Yunus Musa from Valencia. A very exciting young midfielder. Uh, so, you know, p- potentially one to sort of take over Tonali. But the one who has taken over Tonali's spot has been Tiani Reinders. A 19 million from AZ. Very, very good progressive midfielder. A bit different to, to, to Tonali in that sense. Uh, but I, I think he sort of uh, fits in very well to the system. Then 16 million on Ruben Loftus-Cheek from Chelsea. Uh, again, a player who didn't have the best of times recently, but definitely a talented player in there. And he has slotted really well. Uh, into the right side of of midfield and really added an attacking threat uh, down that side as well. So he's also been important in sort of the rejuvenation of the right wing alongside the wingers. And finally, uh, Noah Kafur for 14 million from Airbus Salzburg hasn't really started that much so far, uh, but but definitely very good score depth. As is Luka Jovic on a free from Fiorentina. We did see them last night against Genoa. Definitely not probably your starters uh, ahead of the likes of, you know, Oliver Giroud still, Rafael Leo, definitely. Uh, but good squad depth and important squad depth in, in what is going to be a very, very busy season indeed. Uh, Varun has his hand up. So, Varun, do you want to quickly make your point before we get into the tactics? Yeah, I mean, I just wanted to say that, I mean, you covered the transfers and even Inter uh, with Pavard, Somer, Thuram. These are probably two of the best windows across Europe, I think, in the summer. And it's a big reason for why Inter and Milan are doing so well. They've just really gotten transfer spot on in these last few windows. So even here, I mean, you can clearly see a plan with Pulisic, Chukweze, Musa, Reindeers, Loftus-Cheek, Okafor. They're all that under-25 range of good high-ceiling players, all within the 14 to 20 million range. No, they have not paid about 20 million for anyone. And all in areas that they needed strengthening in. A right winger, a backup left winger, three, four midfielders, uh, an attacking midfielder. So, it's just been really good transfer work. And I just wanted to point that out. That uh, both Milan and Inter, um, we can talk about tactics all day. But the talent that they're getting, the squads that they're making, I think they could be set for a while. Uh, in the next few years if they continue to build teams like this. Yep, absolutely. I think one final point to make for the transfer stuff is that, you know, often when someone gets, like, a big fee for 
uh, one of their players like Milan did for Tonali. I mean, sixty-five million, not that big in this window apparently, but still a very good amount of money. You know, one of the sort of I mean, I think common mistakes that many teams make is reinvest a very big chunk of that on just one player as the replacement to that player, uh, and that obviously puts a lot of pressure on that player. And it's it's also basically a risk you're taking, right? I mean, sort of you're hedging your bets on that player to be very good and replace that the the one you lost. But if 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 that doesn't work, then you basically lost all that money. So, um, excuse me. What uh, Milan did really well is they spread out uh the all, all that sort of money that they had, you know, as we saw with maximum transfer fee of just twenty million. So that's that's really well done. And, and yeah, as I you can. Said, I just wanted to say one thing. I can see this happening a few times again. Uh, they have all these youngsters plus Rafael Leao. So many yeah, players. Leao is going to fetch like hundred plus million easily. Yeah, they, uh, they can definitely market, do so. the sell for sixty, eighty, ninety, and then again reinvest in twenty, twenty-five million odd. You know, youngsters. So they can do this multiple times. I just think they have stumbled onto a good team building strategy. Yep, absolutely. Uh, so let's now get into their tactics. Um, this season, as I said, it's been a lot of mixing and matching. So to start with, they started with uh, so Calabria at right back seems the first choice. So in the initial few games, they had him invert into midfield uh, alongside Krunic, uh, who sometimes even drop between the centre backs. Uh, and obviously Teo Hernandez starts deep on the left, but then pushes up. Uh, so it was. I mean, you can't. Milan are really, really fluid in many cases, so you can't really assign sort of a number to to their shape. But very basically, you could call it a sort of two, three, five, but not exactly symmetrically because, as I said, Calabria inverts into midfield, uh, Hernandez starts deep, but then pushes up. So, what, what what sort of stood out to me in these first games was their sort of attacking rotations. So on the left side, you had, as I said, Tiani Reinders in midfield who wasn't so attacking. He was more of a progressive midfielder. He dropped back and received the ball, carry forward, pass forward, and very good progressor on that side. Of course, you've got Rafael Leao and Teo Hernandez to do the attacking, so that's basically sorted. And then on the right side, you didn't have your wing back, or rather your full back overlapping because Calabria was in midfield. But Ruben Loftus-Cheek did really well to support the winger, mostly Pulisic, uh, by even even going out wide sometimes, so even sort of overlapping um, at, from midfield, so making a run out wide, or obviously just pushing up straight uh, in, in the half space. So uh, th- those two main attacking rotations, uh, obviously Hernandez and Leao, which is I mean one we've seen for many years now, and I mean you you can see it all day, but it's really hard to stop when those two are going. Uh, but more importantly, on the right, with the sort of dynamism that Loftus Cheek brought in alongside the winger. I felt that was uh, perhaps one of one of the keys to sort of that early success and good start. But then this sort of started mixing and matching stuff for different games. If I remember correctly, the uh, derby against Inter was the first time they decided to try something new. Uh, and I mean, what they basically did was play a sort of traditional two-three-two-three uh, out of four-three-three, which is. Basically, no like midfielder, no fullbacks inverting, and, and that sort of stuff. Of course, you still had Hernandez pushing up more, uh, Calabria not so much, but he wasn't exactly inverted in midfield either. Uh, and obviously, that game didn't go well at all. They lost five one. Uh, 
Um, but but since then, we have started to see them uh, change things, as I said. So just last night against Genoa, for example, they, they didn't start with all their key players because of the Champions League. And I think this is the main reason behind all of this mixing and matching. So they started with uh, Florenzi now at right back as opposed to Calabria. And Calabria is sort of much better ball progressor, I'd say. So uh, it's understandable that they uh, might look to change some stuff. So here, what they had was um, Florenzi operating as like a, a traditional fullback out wide, not overlapping so much, but staying wide. Uh, and in midfield, Yasin Adli has come in, in in the last few matches as as the central midfielder, the number six, interestingly, and he's done pretty well as well. Almost, I mean, similar to Chalanolu, almost in the sense that you know when when he came through at I think Bordeaux was it, uh, he was a very exciting sort of more advanced player, but now he's dropped back a bit as a number six, and he's 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 done really well uh, in 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 these few games and. Last night, he was also supported quite a bit by the, the number eight, Randers and Musa. Uh, and of course, this is all sort of to mask Radek Krunic's injury. He's out, I think, until later this month. It's not long term, but he's out for a bit. So they have had to use Adli to sort of mask it. But I think when Krunic returns, I expect them to return to a more pure lone six uh, system. But I think, you know... I think the theme so far has been mixing and matching stuff depending on who's playing, uh, which is a, a good thing in general. Uh, but what I did like to see is those sort of wide rotations coming back on both flanks, uh, the rejuvenation of the right side with the new wingers, with Loftus-Cheek, or even Musa if, he, if, he's, if he's there instead. So adding sort of more dimensions to their attack. Uh, and and in, in all those respects, they have improved uh, their sort of their attacking and their possession play uh, a good deal defensively it's i mean it's, i mean i guess still some work to do they've scored or rather they've conceded i should say eight goals in uh, all of their in their eight matches rather so uh, one each on average in the league and their expected goals conceded is about the same as well so it's definitely not the strongest of defenses in the league as is the case with like inter uh, but I mean, it's it's. I, I don't think they have the sort of capability to reach an inter-level uh, defense. So, I mean, this is probably about as good as it's going to get for them. They are reliant quite a bit on their attack. Defensively, they don't tend to press so much. They'll generally sit in a block. Uh, but it's, I mean, it's just not as solid, uh, partly because of maybe the, the players they have uh, are not as defensively solid in a block. Like the center backs are all right, but everything around them is is not quite up to that standard to sort of defend for long periods. And even in midfield, you know, I mean, like uh, Yasin Adli playing as as sort of deepest midfielder, he's not a midfielder who's you know renowned for his defensive work. So with with all of that considered, I do think if they are to succeed this season, it will be through like their firepower in attack more so than anything. Uh, Varun has his hand up. What do you have to add to that, Varun? Yeah, I mean, I think good summary of what Milan have been doing. And I just wanted to add a few points on their build-up and progression. I mean, we've seen modern football go in a way where build-up has become super important. And I think the reason is because pressing became super important first. Everyone now presses well. 
everyone has good pressing structures and i think pressing is a little easier to coach because you just need to have intense players who are willing to follow basic instructions build up on the other hand we have seen the levels getting higher and higher to beat these varying press setups varying press patterns and i think it's a little tougher to a, a nail because you need a lot of technicality you need a lot of iq you need players who are comfortable in the ball then you need movements and patterns and i just think and i'm going to put this statement out there because i don't think many people will read milan that way i think they're one of the best teams in europe when it comes to build up and progression they have lots of good patterns they have very very well coached patterns pirelli has done an excellent job they have really good technical players in the last 5 6 and they only improved it with their signings all the signings that we read out lot of them they do help uh, in, in build up so i just want to like take us through a few uh, examples of uh, how they do this they usually build up in a back three but then this back three could be formed by anyone at times theo hernandez the left back he comes in a deeper position like a narrow left back or a left center back david calabria is mostly inverting into the midfield to form a double, a double pivot with usually with radik krunic now with someone else uh, with krunic's injury then hernandez also can drop deeper into the back three from advanced midfield positions he's very very willing to drop into the pivot or even again all the way into the first line so it just gives them a lot of variations and as an opponent you're constantly thinking okay whom should i mark and whom should i you know uh, chase behind or uh, go behind and that is constantly the doubt opposition have and even if they figure it out i've seen lots of matches where milan have a certain uh, pattern and the opponents are pressing the right players the uh, you know getting into the right areas 20 minutes in they've changed their pattern and now they have attacked that space and for example in the match versus roma they did this brilliantly different players kept dropping into the back three and they they would lose their markers space would be created and then they would pass there immediately they are very very astute into moving into those spaces and then when they are turning and going forward they have those 3v3s 3v2s matchups in the wide areas mainly on the left you know all this all this dancing around to get rafael leao and theo hernandez in a 2v2 or to be one situation and and that's it and then you're mostly looking at uh, high quality chance generation so the whole idea of having multiple patterns to then get in uh, your place is really good and their central presence is also amazing i mean they almost at times have five players in the middle uh, loftus cheek uh, is again usually in the right half space uh, with adley with reindeers they have so many players who are with them lot of their strikers are often willing to drop into the center we saw this in the past with zlatan and giroud who drop all the way you know to uh, central midfield uh, kind of slots and that is continued all of leo uh, the strikers that uh, currently play all of them have that ability to come right to the center so all, they at times are able to overload the center with four five players so then those passes between the lines the pass into the half space those grounded passes they are very very easy because there's always someone there they actually don't resort to long balls or balls to the target men as much as people think even when that jurodens latin they were not just randomly pinging long balls to them hoping one of them puts it down to rafael leao in transition that happened no one saying no but i think people have a misconception that that that's all they do maybe because it happened a few more times in in the champions league against tough teams and in in the early part of pirelli's tenure when he was figure, figuring things out but 
currently as it stands milan are one of the best build up teams and that's the reason they're able to get their best players in into good positions and their best player being rafael leao now let's just transition to leao and i really think he's an exciting player but again like we have said in our player profile uh, episode even today when we were talking about dumfries there are some strengths and some weaknesses even leao as he is brilliant when he's facing play running at his full back coming in from a wide position he has a bit of space or he has the 2v1 threat along with leo hernandez he's brilliant in those situations his footwork his decision making his ball striking whether it's for shooting or crossing or fizzing a final pass or a cutback in those are all amazing among the best in europe what he's not really good at for one he's not a good defender at all i actually think very poorly of his pressing or defending i i make this statement to a lot of my uh, united fans friends i'm like everything you say about marcus rashford rafael leao is he's a very very bad defender and he is a bit too reliant on transitional moments uh, i i'm not sure if he's the kind of finger you would want to include in progression or help build uh, build a player on ask him to drop deep and pass a lot he does that at times he does give that wide threat uh, in deep areas at times but then you really just want him in transitional moments facing the play so all of this you can even say is a lot of build up and progression to get leao in those situations and what really helps is he has an amazing partnership with theo hernandez it's not as simplistic to say theo hernandez overlaps and leao cuts in yes that happens a lot but a lot of the other variations also happen theo hernandez also underlaps and rafael leao you know plays a pass into him there are sometimes both of them are you know narrow in uh, inside situations and one two with each other to get into the left half space so they have a lot of combinations uh, that keeps opponents guessing it's not as simple as just go wide in mark one just stay narrow in mark one it's not that simplistic so yeah i mean i i really, really do like the attacking dynamics and agree with neil that they they get found out a little defensively i'm not a very big fan of their pressing setup or of their defensive organization but in build up and in position i think they are one of the most exciting teams in europe yeah absolutely and just one final point to add is uh, olivier giro you mentioned i think he goes a bit underrated in terms of his link up play and stuff because as you say so, you know some people might have the perception that oh you giro up top so just you know ping long balls into him and of course you can do that he he deals with that well but just generally dropping off you know with, with layoffs to like the attackers or, or like the midfielders pushing up He's he's really really good even with his back to goal uh, to sort of help progression on on the ground, uh, and so I think you know with with all of that and everything you mentioned, as a Milan in possession, one of one of the best teams uh, in Serie A definitely and possibly even wider. Uh, but yeah, the main question is defensively, and in my opinion, that's that's probably what's gonna decide their season. So I think we have covered most of the most of our things about the two Milan clubs. Uh, let's quickly. I just want to quickly mention uh, in, when we talk about the context of the Serie A title race. Uh, you know, a few other contenders. What's going on? Defending champions Napoli not having the best of seasons so far and not really looking like you know top contenders to be honest. Uh, despite the fact that the squad hasn't really changed much. very few major departures i think kim and jay really the only one uh, but and after the managerial change has sort of really sort of changed things 
Luciano Spalletti, of course, left. And Rudy Garcia is the one they've brought in. I was not a fan of this appointment. And yeah, I, th- I think uh, for good reason in hindsight, because it, it's, it's just not going on. There's some off-field issues too, of course. I'm sure everyone's seen the Osiman stuff with, I don't know what they posted on TikTok or whatever. Uh, so definitely not having the best of starts. And personally, I don't think they're going to be able to keep up with Inter at least. Maybe Milan uh, or M- Milan and, and they might have a, a close, maybe fight for second or something. But I don't think they're serious title contenders. Lazio finished second last season. Some people thought they might even challenge for the title this season. Well, they're 16th right now. Seven points from seven games, uh, as as we said. And, uh, we, didn't, we didn't say that. Seven points from seven games uh, is you know, a really poor tally. And on expected points as well, they're really, really bad. They're 14th on expected points at the start of this match day, match day eight. So it's it's pretty horrific. And it's safe to say they're not going to be in the title race. So that's them out. And lastly, uh, it's definitely not least, Juventus. I think they're not very good. Warren thinks they're not very good. We all agree they're not fun to watch. I think they don't have enough attacking quality to be a part of a title race. Alex has a different opinion. Maybe one for a different podcast entirely because he has predicted them to win the league. But Alex, let's, let's, let's not uh, debate that right now. Uh, instead... We will have some very quick predictions about the two Milan clubs, uh, their league positions and their, I mean, uh, other competitions. So where they get in the Champions League and if you, you want a bonus, uh, what they do in the Coppa Italia. All right. Uh, do you want to time this? Let's time this. Why not? Everyone gets a minute. Actually, that's too much. You get half a minute. Uh, who wants to start? Give it to Varun. I went first last week. Fair enough. Uh, Varun, you have half a minute. Okay, well, it's two clubs. You know what? I feel bad. You have... Uh, no, 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 no. Half <laughs> okay. a minute. Okay, okay. For two clubs, all right. I don't know how I'm going to do that. But okay. Uh, Varun, uh, half a minute for two clubs. All the best. Okay. Inter win the league. Milan comes second or third, depending on Juventus. Which Juventus decides to turn up. Inter go deep in the Champions League again. I think the squad is very suited to Champions League football. They go to the quarters or semis. Um, Milan in the Champions League. It's a tough one. I don't think they go beyond the quarters. Round of 16 or quarters. Um, Cups. Your time is up. Bad news. Inter win a cup. No, you you don't get very happy. Count. You, you count. I, mean, so, I thought you were going to let it run. I'm so happy you cut him off. <laughs> you guys are mean. Uh, okay. Uh, Alex, do you want to go next or should I go? Uh, I'll go. Ready? Do you want to give me a free All two? Right. Yep. Three, two, one. Okay, well, Inter will finish above Milan. I think Milan get top four, maybe, although preseason I didn't predict them to. But, you know, you guys have spoken out how good they are. Uh, yeah, I think Inter win the league, or they might come second, depending on if Juventus do it, because I think they can win the league. So, ha, take that, Neil. I got my opinion in. Uh, in the Cups, I've got Simone Inzaghi, who is a cup-winning manager, got to the final last season, has won three Coppa Italias, maybe four, over Lazio and Inter Milan. Well, he's got to those finals. He's great. So I think Inter will go very far in the cup competitions, potentially win the league. Milan will have an all right season. Pioli will leave at the end Our of it. time is up. But I think you pretty much got everything in. That was yeah, too finished. I mean, you got everything in. 
and uh, like last three seconds he it. made three predictions Alex you should like start a series of 30 second predictions and you just keep learning it (laughs) Uh, yeah it's almost like I made these short videos before I don't know Mm -hmm. yeah that's yeah Yeah. good idea maybe you should try that someday Alex maybe with like a a tactics board or something you know it may be a massive egotistical name on on account maybe like proclaiming (laughs) to be an expert that might be an idea good idea that might work yeah yeah fair Anyway, now stop stumbling, uh, Neil. It's down to you. Yeah, okay. My time starts now. All right. Inter in the league, Milan second or third, but I won't say come, don't come close. I will say five plus points at the very least. Champions League, Milan out of the group stage. Uh, Inter semi-finals. Uh, Coppa Italia, Inter win. Uh, Milan semi-finals. Uh, and I will also say uh, Milan drop to... No, Milan fourth in the group. Why not? Let's have it. The Champions League, that is. Uh, bold prediction, but well, why not? Uh, so yeah, I think I said everything. No one tied yeah. me, but I think that was under. I, know, I did, I did. You got it just under. Beautiful, brilliant stuff. Uh, in that case, I think we are all done for today. So yeah, that's another lovely episode in the bag. Uh, thank you everyone for joining us. Of course, you can find all of us on Twitter. Uh, Varun is at the Devil's DNA. Alex, uh, as he said, is at EuroExpert underscore. Uh, I am at Shailat Neil, and you can find all the Get Football accounts if you go to at Get Football EU. In the bio, we have all the sort of uh, league-specific accounts tagged. So that is all you need for those things. Um, of course, you can keep a lookout on all of our media outlets, uh, where we'll be covering football from all over the world with all sorts of stuff. You know, news pieces and analysis videos uh, from from some of the best uh, uh, writers and analysts around. And you can find a link to all of that in the description or the notes uh, of of this podcast episode, wherever you're listening. And if your app allows it, uh, please do rate the podcast as well. And give us five stars if you can, because that helps us. And of course, feel free to share uh, on on social media too, if you enjoyed. But in any case, thank you very much for listening. Uh, Thanks to you guys, Alex and Warren, for joining us. And we'll be back soon with another episode. Take care until then. Goodbye.